Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Michelle Kunmiller, um, who is the author of Homer's Hero, Human Excellence in the Odyssey, in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Sorry about that. This was published by SUNY Press, State University of New York Press in 2019. And this is a really interesting and nuanced um, investigation of both the Iliad and the Odyssey and the idea of what we think about in terms of excellence, obviously in the classical period, but also pulling it forward to how we can think about human excellence in our own time. But I'm going to let Michelle tell us a little bit about that after I ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Welcome to the New Books Podcast, Michelle. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. My pleasure. Please do tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to Homer's Hero. Uh, Let's see. So I am currently an assistant professor at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, And I came to be an assistant professor of political science because I love law, I love literature, and I love political philosophy. And one day I discovered that teaching political theory would be the one career I could imagine where I could do all three. Um, So, yeah, that was really the aha moment for me and, and why I do what I do. In terms of this specific topic... I am kind of a lost English major at heart or a lost literature major at heart. So when I went to get my PhD, I pretty much knew that I would be trying to work with literature. And um, I, I started off really focusing on Plato a lot. And I really loved this dramatic and literary element that Plato had. And I was kind of immediately suspect of the love of honor as a, a salutary thing in politics. And um, and so I was kind of reading along in, in, in my Plato, and I'd been to uh, Diotima's speech in the symposium. And I was just, I was very suspect of this whole hierarchy of like, first we go from family to making war on each other to philosophy, um, to put it in the worst possible life of politics. And, and then I was really, really super suspect of the reading of it at the end, you know, Bloom's interpretation. And, um, and I was reading The Republic, and Bloom has that essay at the end of the edition that nearly everyone has, yep. uh, where he says of the marriage arrangements in The Republic that no one has ever actually lived like this. And... I got really angry when I read that because I thought, well, there are a whole lot of women who've been herded into pens and kind of allocated off <laughs> to the most prize-worthy of the men to breed, sort of. Hmm. Has anybody watched Bridgerton recently? <laughs> yeah, and I thought, that's just wrong. Men haven't lived like that. Women have lived like that, uh, which kind of means that to a certain extent men have, if depending on how you read the exact arrangement in the Republic, which is, of course, open to lots of contention. But anyway, so that was what was in my mind at the same time that I was really in love with the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I I thought, well, I'm going to 
go through and I'm going to reread The Republic and I'm going to look up every single line I possibly can in the Iliad and the Odyssey where they might reflect on each other and where I might learn more about The Republic from the Iliad and the Odyssey. So this really started from me wanting to know more about love of honor in Plato. (laughs) And what happened was I just got sucked into the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I found that even before I wanted to make any arguments about the Republic, I had to make arguments about the Iliad and the Odyssey. Because as soon as I started opening my mouth to say anything about the love of family, the love of one's own, about excellence in private life, I just hit these blanket objections to that couldn't possibly be so in any ancient source. And that was when I kind of discovered that I had a bigger topic. Uh, and so the the sort of weaving together, not only of the Iliad and the Odyssey, but also the way that Socrates and Plato or Socrates discusses the sort of Homeric heroes in the Republic were all part of what was going on that brought you to this topic is what it sounds like to me. Very much so. In in particular, it's funny because in the book, I make a big deal out of the uh, choice at the end of the Republic of Odysseus for his reincarnation and how it appears, give or take a little bit, like that's probably the best choice that, that Socrates talks about. Um, I make a big deal out of that in the book, but it, that was not really what sucked me in. That was what I found was persuasive on other people. What sucked me in was uh, there's a point where, um, let's see, where Socrates says with the guardians, well, and we'll reward them just the way Agamemnon rewards Ajax. And he quotes this line from the Iliad where Agamemnon ensures that Ajax gets the prime cut of meat at a feast after Ajax has done well in a fight. And then there's a a similar point where uh, Socrates appears to be um, putting down Odysseus and he quotes this line where it appears on the surface that Odysseus is saying, the best thing in the world is to stuff your face. Well, to me, when you go back to the Iliad and the, the Iliad and the Odyssey and you read those lines in context, they, they really change the meaning of those scenes in the Republic. Because if you look at the Iliad as a whole, when you see people being um, motivated by the love of honor, that does not really pan out well. That leads to a lot of strife, although there are some good benefits. But there's a lot of reasons to question whether or not that's a good way to motivate people and a good love to uh, nurture in your citizens or, or even just your warriors. And then in the Odyssey, when you look at the larger speech that Odysseus's uh, statement about Um, uh, eating is taken from, it's this claim where he says, you know, there's kind of just nothing more wonderful than when a people sits down and they're in harmony with one another and there's music and there's prosperity. And so the, 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 the line that, the line that is taken kind of out of context when put back in context seems to reflect on taking care of one's bodily needs in a far more favorable way that it facilitates and nurtures some really important aspects of human community. So those were kind of the two lines that convinced me that there was more going on. And then the deeper and deeper I got into the Iliad and the Odyssey, the more I realized that in light of the general state of of scholarship on these three works, 
Um, I had a lot of work to do just with the Iliad and the Odyssey to bring my reading of those out and make that persuasive before I could even think about going anywhere with the Republic, which I hope one day will happen, but who knows? Okay. So the Republic falls out except sort of for the myth of Ur um, that you talk about um, at the, at the end of the Republic, but the, the book itself that we're talking about today is Homer's hero. Um, and I note that it's hero, not heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that a lot of what you focus on throughout the book is the, the character of Odysseus. Um, but Odysseus in the second half of your book is also not without his Penelope. Um, but I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the Odyssey and the Iliad. As you note, you, you're not able to look at one without the other. Um, and that you sort of talk about the fact that they, they really should be read in context of each other. Can you talk a little bit more about that broadly? I mean, most of us read the Odyssey oftentimes in high school. Um, very fewer of us read the Iliad unless we're kind of interested in it. So this is not something, you know, sometimes we come to a work with like a a thesis or something we've persuaded of of already. And sometimes it's something we kind of discover along the way. And particularly if we have no vested interest in it, those are the things that, that I find really persuasive to myself. And this for me was something that like, I had no, I had no dog in this fight. I didn't care. But the more I read them, the more I found them to be just so, uh, intertwined and reflective of one another. And whether that's because, you know, there was a second Homer who really did a lovely job of knitting them together, or whether that's because they were put together more or less at the same time, I have no opinion on. But the way I see it is I, I almost envision them as a pair of tapestries that are in the same room, kind of across, uh, across the room from each other. And they have each of them has a a major and a minor theme and the major theme of the one is the minor theme of the other so that by looking at both you understand more about either theme and either tapestry than you could either on its own and in the Iliad the the major theme to me seems to be the desire for an everlasting name for an eternal name for honor for glory for the respect and love of your peers um oftentimes it's it's talked about in terms of having a a wonderful burial uh and and there are so many reasons to read the iliad and just have your your breath taken away by the feats that are accomplished in pursuit of this honor um and in the the Odyssey, the, the major theme is is homecoming and desire for one's own and the the beauty and wonder and joy of being united in a family and feeling secure there and taken care of and and even I think really I think like the beauty of the bath in the Odyssey is under undersold. Um, just like physical comfort, safety, security, um, and. And but each of those themes then is reflected in the other in a way. And in the Iliad, what we see is that um, a lot of the price that is paid for the love of 
honor is to the detriment of the love of one's own. And so you see the, the, the negative side of the love of honor, but it's always understated. It's, it's definitely in the background or um, I wish I knew my musical terminology well enough to put it in those terms. Um, but it's kind of like, it's, it's not front and center. So it's, it's in the moments where, you know, some poor warrior is described as a, as a, as a flower toppling over or in um, the, the women who are being exchanged as price prizes or in Hector or in drama case, uh, mourning over the loss of her husband, but also what's going to happen to her son. And then the, um, in the Odyssey, um, you also see a critique of the love that is celebrated in it. You see a critique of the love of one's own um, because Odysseus fails to respect others. <laughs> he fundamentally does not get that. And also, uh, there are there are holes in his leadership capacity. You know, he does not bring his army home, and I I think that that is tied to weaknesses in the love that that poem celebrates. So that's why I think you need to see them together um, is because of the way they kind of mirror each other, but in an inverse relationship of emphasis, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and again, I think that's why your, your analogy with regard to the tapestries, if we're looking at tapestries and one, and they both tell stories that are connected to one another, but one is is more emphasizing of a particular story, and the other one has the same story but in a different context. That you know, you you can't if you only look at one, you miss so much of the story, um, which I sort of totally understand, having gotten to the Iliad way after I read the Odyssey. <laughs> um, but you also are obviously for many of us who have read the Odyssey. That is the story of Odysseus, whereas the Iliad is the story of many of these Homeric heroes. Um, and your your book is about human excellence and the way that, in a certain sense, Odysseus is more um, encapsulating of that than many of the other heroes. Uh, can you draw out, you know, sort of who the heroes were and what their excellence was? in the Iliad, as you discuss it in the book, versus to some degree what's going on in the Odyssey? I believe I can. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, the, the, you know, here's here's a funny thing that I think I discovered that, that is a good key to my reading of these books, is I think that both books, to many readers, inspire loves that the main heroes do not share. So I think that the Iliad, for people for whom the Iliad is the book of preference early on in life in particular, it's because they see Achilles and they see kind of his battlefield brilliance and they think about that name that he has, you know, over thousands of years and there's a, a romance and a beauty to that and they're enthralled by it and they want to be like Achilles. But the love that's, that has been stirred in their hearts of immortality, I do not believe is a love that, um, that Achilles shares with them. Uh, similarly, in the Odyssey, I think for many people who come to it, I think people come to it in two different ways. One is they see in it a romance or a love story. I think that's in line with what the book is about. But I think many, many people and more people who've written about it um, 
which might be me a way of saying more men, but I'm not sure that that's unequivocally true. Um, they come to it and they see an adventure story. <laughs> they see like the the islands and the monsters and the shipwrecks and the nymphs and and they think, wow, Odysseus has had this amazing adventure, this opportunity for exploration and footloose and fancy free. And they're transported by that. But I don't think that that's what the character is about. I think the character is about his desire for his home, his family, what's his own. And that's what ultimately motivates him. So um, to kind of try to to be a little bit more specific about characters, I think that in um, in the Iliad, the, the characters who are driven by that love of immortality that so many people associate with Achilles are really Ajax and Agamemnon. And, and I don't know if they're a best case and a worst case scenario, but they show us some benefits and some prices that we pay for the love of honor. Um, whereas Hector and Achilles seem like characters who are far more torn between various um, various desires. And I think that Odysseus is a character who takes a definite voyage. Um, That was redundant. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean to do that. You do that all the time accidentally when working on this book. I can understand. (laughs) But he starts out a little bit more torn between different desires. But by the end, he really has to overcome his love of honor, Um, much like surprisingly Socrates says at the end of the myth of Ur, in order to reclaim his own. And, and I, I mean, I always found as, as you're describing it, and as I was reading through your book, I did always find Odysseus's story really kind of melancholy because he's sad most of the time. He is so sad and it is so crazy that so many people don't read him that way. I mean, they really think that the man was just like enamored with nymphs and voyages. And so you get out of this a couple different varieties of Odysseus. One is kind of Odysseus as the loser bourgeois, like the guy who just wants to be well-fed and have lots of sex. And if you offer him that, he'll do whatever. And this, to me, just completely ignores the way the poem emphasizes over and over again his longing for his home and his wife. Um, And... And then the, I mean, I just have trouble with any other interpretation based on the text. And then um, another interpretation is we get Odysseus, um, who's kind of a proto philosopher. So his wander, his wanderlust is a beginning of the search for knowledge. And while I'm somewhat more sympathetic to that as something that's a, an admirable thing to love. I don't think it's really there in Odysseus, or at least it's never dominant. Yes, he does have kind of a more intellectual side than than most of uh, Homer's heroes. But at the end of the day, I don't think that's, that's what he's all about. Um, and again, we know this because of the way he really wants his wife, his home, his bed, his son, his dog, his home, for crying out loud. Um, and, and the joy and the solace that he finds in them. Um, and you know, there are ways that some of the translations have actually undermined that aspect of the Odyssey in particular. Lattimore, who's like this godlike translator. I mean, I really like, I, I can't emphasize enough how much I admire Lattimore, but the only time I would find him 
really betraying me. It would be in in the um, Greeks' emphasis of either Odysseus's desire for his homeland, his happiness to be heading home, or there's a particular scene in the scene of reunion where they talk to one another. And there's a fair amount in the literature on Odysseus saying that Odysseus doesn't tell Penelope everything or he lies to her or he kind of like barely talks to her. And when you go back and you look at the Greek, it is it emphasizes to the point of ridiculous redundancy that he tells her everything, telling all until his story is complete. So why do you think, I mean, this is a, this is a very sidebar question, but, but why do you think that the translations that, you know, so many of us are familiar with, the Lattimore or the Fitzgerald, um, are ones that kind of obscure that, that longing? So I, I think that, and I bump into this with my students sometimes too, where, um, you know, today women get to do a lot of things that they didn't get to used to do, but there's been this monochrome brush that's gone back in history. Um, that has kind of said no woman has ever been respected, loved, treated as a friend, viewed as intelligent by any man ever over the course of history that you kind of bump into a lot. I, and I think that, um, that some of this comes from the Victorian age and their painting of history, and then just kind of that mistake getting repeated over and over again. I've talked to a couple historian friends who have really pointed me to the Victorians as this moment in interpreting the medievals and the ancients in which we write anything that's private or female-dominated or female-sharing out of the history that comes before that would, I think fit nicely with the Lattimore timing and, um, and, and also fit nicely with kind of the fact that I've, I've hit from so many people. Well, um, you know, Odysseus can't have viewed his wife as a friend because we know that relationships weren't that way at that point, or because at that point in history, um, we know that no one viewed anything as private as being excellent or capable of virtue. And I kind of probe that. And I often will find that that line is, is coming back to a Victorian interpretation or something reliant on it. That's my working theory, but I don't know for sure. Well, I, I thank you for going on that tangent with me. So I appreciate it. Yeah, and I'm it, really it's, curious because I think it means that there may be a lot of resources for thinking about women in politics that are in the ancients that we've kind of been brainwashed out of thinking were there during our educations. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we see some of this that transpired with regard to interpretations of Shakespeare characters as well. And you and I probably have had this conversation at some conference or another. <laughs> Um, I would hazard to guess, uh, or we will have that conversation when we get to go to conferences again. Um, but you brought up a lot of these, the, the components of your analysis in answering or responding to that tangent, which is that in your analysis in this book, we have the friendship between Odysseus and Penelope as something that's really important and is is also real and fleshed out 
by his longing. Um, and that's also in the private sphere more than the public sphere, which is part of the tension that you talk about. Can you explain a little bit about that relationship and how it contributes to this concept of human excellence? So I think maybe a good starting point would be to say that part of what I was responding to was this argument that for the ancient Greeks, um, nothing that takes place in private, nothing that takes place without a, a record and a human view can be excellent. Um, and I think that it's Hannah Arendt that expressed that the most adamantly and unequivocally, but I think it's something that gets kind of echoed um, a lot. So this seemed, it, this was the first thing that I pushed up against when I started writing about their relationship. And the, the thing that I really try to prove, and I, and I hope I prove, is that Homer shows us that uh, the relationship between Odysseus and Penelope is central to why he wants to be home. So in other words, like, why does he have this love of his home um, central to that? It's not necessarily the only component, but central to that is his friendship with his wife. And the friendship to his wife has many aspects to it. Um, some of it is the fact that they share a son who they have high hopes for. Some of it is the fact that, you know, from a very practical perspective, they, um, you know, they have common security and wealth concerns. Uh, but some of that is that they have this friendship that is based on um, uh, their mutual excellence and the regard for that in one another. And that's, I think, important both because it's what, it's what makes possible their successful defense of their home. So within the structure of the poem, you need excellence within the home uh, and within the marriage and a kind of friendship within that marriage in order for it to contribute to a stable political whole. So in terms of the book as about politics, I think that that's where it plays in. But in terms of the book, more about what makes for a fulfilling and a good human life, um, I use I use the the virtues from the Republic. I use wisdom and um, uh, moderation and courage, and I tr show that both characters exhibit these three virtues and that they recognize them in one another and that that's the basis of their friendship. And the reason why I think that's important is to refute this claim that in order to be true, full human beings or in order to be practicing our virtue or nurturing our virtue, we have to be in public view. It seems to me that that is very false and pernicious. Um, and so to, to show this relationship in all of its beauty and human excellence taking place in their bedroom in this night that no one knows about, um, that, that was a big part of what motivated writing the book for me. And, and so the, the discussion of sort of this question of human excellence as, as being, um, outside of public view, because the Iliad is a lot about the discussion of the activities and, and sort of feats of heroics that take place in front of others. Um, and as you have noted also that the heroes in the Iliad are ones who are 
toggling with this question of honor and glory and immortality. Um, And so in terms of these texts reflecting back on one another, what parts of human excellence do we understand in the Iliad that sort of connect also to this, the, the more private relational um, discussion that you have about the Odyssey? So I think that the biggest contrast comes with the virtues of courage and moderation. So the character who, to my mind, does the best job of exhibiting the love of honor and who for me makes it the most exemplary. And there were moments when I was writing this, when I was really just full of admiration for him was Ajax. I I don't believe that Ajax has a particular friend. I think he views all men who are on his side as his brothers and all women is no different than cooking pots. Like I I just think it's that simple in his mind, but there's a kind of uh, almost selflessness that comes out of his love of honor because of his total commitment to it. And so the, the courage and the wholeheartedness which is, with which he protects his brothers in battle and works with them creates this kind of teamwork and seamlessness that I just, I, as much as I didn't want to like it, like I, I kind of like loved watching him at moments in it. Um, but the dark side of that is the, that when the love of honor isn't rewarded as the actor or as the lover of honor expects, it appears to create... Um, just a, 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 a total lack of moderation um, and impulse control. And, and where this plays out with Ajax is when he um, has the dispute with Odysseus um, over the uh, over the armor of Achilles. Um, and with Agamemnon, that downside of the love of honor is really front and center in the Iliad because we see it in um, uh, Agamemnon's constant back and forth with Achilles and his Again, inability to moderate his own impulses, even even for his own best interests, um, even if his best interest is just getting what he wants, the honor. He can't control himself. And when I say moderation, it's really kind of moderation in the sense of self-restraint, the capacity to check one's passionate impulses, um, not necessarily moderation in the sense of middle of the road. And, and, and so we're talking about essentially the capacity for these two men, Ajax and Agamemnon, to actually have some foresight about the repercussions of what they're doing. Yeah, to have capacity, to have the foresight, to act on that foresight, to care in the moment about what's coming down the road. Definitely. And I think that that's where kind of the the intelligence piece comes in. I don't think that Ajax and Agamemnon are necessarily less intelligent, but they they don't see the need to employ speech the same way. Um, Whereas Odysseus is, even in the Iliad, like his greatest gift is his capacity with speech to be persuasive, Um, which I think we are all pretty clear about is a key political skill (laughs) and it goes along without acting like they did in the Iliad. So... Um, so that right there starts to make, well, maybe this, uh, this check on the love of honor or the love of honor look like a, a, the very least a double-edged sword if it doesn't come with the gift of speech or the ability to use your brain with words. Um, and then in the, the Odyssey, the, it appears that Odysseus kind of has a series of hurdles to overcome, and a lot of those hurdles are learning to um, – in the moments where his love of honor is provoked or, or where other desires that would 
uh, in the long run prevent him from getting home and reclaiming his home or provoked, he has to learn to uh, be moderated. He has to learn to check his own impulses and think ahead and use speech in those moments. And so that, I think, is one of the 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 kind of the series of adventures and even the adventure of reclaiming his home as well into to a very great extent Penelope's adventures in making that something that's even possible show both of them employing speech and having great self-restraint as well as some courage um it's not that they lack courage it's just that they don't have kind of this breathtaking display of courage that someone as Ajax does and that's so that's why I say at the end, that while the love of one's own is clearly flawed and it's not enough on its own to get just politics up and rolling, uh, it does seem to uh, establish a better starting point because you have people with some courage um, who understand that they needed to be able to check themselves to be able to restrain themselves in their own impulses and who are employing speech to solve problems. That seems like a better skill set. And I mean, I... I like the way you're characterizing it as, as the capacity to use speech um, and to be able to sort of understand the importance of rhetoric um, as, a, as opposed to necessarily brawny skills on the battlefield. But um, the, the one guy we haven't chatted about very much that you also talk about that one can't really talk about the Iliad without discussing is, of course, our pal Achilles. Yeah. Um, and, and so how does he fit into this sort of human excellence? Obviously, Plato or Socrates, you know, excises him in the, the Republic. He can't be taught um, because he's so problematic. Uh, so how, how is Achilles' excellence, which is his, you know, his power to fight and his sort of capacity in the war, how is that? integrated in your analysis? So I think that uh, Achilles has a, has a character trajectory where he starts out uh, fairly torn between various loves and he doesn't seem to have a necessarily a dominant desire, but that when he loses Patroclus, his, his greatest friend, the person that he loves more than himself, um, that is the point where he loses all self-restraint. So this this points to an interesting kind of uh, potential problem with my argument, because my argument is that the love of one's own does a better job of promoting restraint and that this is necessary for stable politics. But if Achilles ultimately settles on the love of his own particular and specific friend, the kind of friendship that Ajax could never have as his highest and most driving love. And that then the loss of that friend causes him to lose all restraint. Um, Then I guess what it really does is it just underscores how important stable politics are and why war begets war, (laughs) why loss begets loss. And it also, I I think it points to another way that these two stories inform each other, because in a sense, when we're reading the Odyssey, we're reading the could-have-beens for Achilles and Hector. 
Like this is, this could have been their ending. And at the same time, when we read Achilles losing all restraint and, you know, uh, murdering youths and, and uh, defiling Hector's body and uh, becoming extremely impious and just going on and on, we're, I think, seeing what could have happened to Odysseus if reclaiming his, reclaiming his home had not been successful. And and so in that regard, it I don't know that it undercuts your analysis. I think it it may actually show why the melancholy that we see in Odysseus and his traverses to get home, and ultimately the you know the satisfying um, life that he wants at home is one that Achilles doesn't seem to wrap his head around. Yeah. So I, but I think, I think Achilles had almost wrapped his head around it before Patroclus died because he talks about going home, picking a wife of his own fancy, spending his dad's money and, um, and hanging out with his friend. And it seems that that's what he wants. And then when Patroclus dies, what he bemoans is the fact that he's not going to spend the rest of his life sharing his life with his friend. Uh, so yeah, it tells us it tells us why the end of the Odyssey is so serious because that fate could have been Odysseus's. I think another little funny moment is the death of Argos, the dog. Right? I I never really got why the dog had to die. So the dog's waited twenty minutes years, and the man comes home and the dog dies right then. Why? Why, Homer? Did you have to do this? I always thought. But then I think I think the dog had to die to make us sad so that we could get just a teeny tiny taste of how horrific it would have been if Odysseus had gotten all the way there and then lost them at that last moment. So you think that the the sort of the impulse in the audience, in the reader to feel some of that um, grief and, and tragedy is a little taste of what could have been. Yes, it's a little taste of what could have been, and it also it helps it helps with the plot at that point. And I think it it backs up my argument that the point at that the plot at that point is really about the family reunion, and whether or not that's going to be able to be pulled off successfully. Because the the dog the loss of the dog at least to me is real when I read it. So yeah. I don't I mean, not everyone takes that way. I'm not even a dog person. I'm a cat person. <laughs> No, I, I mean, I understand that, that, you know, the sort of the loss of the pet the, is also part of the, the home. It's, yeah. it's part of the family experience. Yeah. And so what you have is you have like, there are certain virtues that are necessary to have this home that is actually good, but having this home that is actually good is driving certain virtues that are driving a stable politics. So it, it works both ways. The, 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 the body politic needs this in the home and the home needs the home is developed. The home that has those virtues is developed out of the desire for that home, if that makes sense. Yeah, that was, I mean, my last question was about sort of our understanding of the public and the private, which threads through your entire analysis, as well as these discussions of, you know, sort of the pursuit of glory and immortality, as well as, you know, this discussion of life in the polis versus life in the house. 
Um, and, and again, this has often been described as the sort of masculine sphere and the feminine sphere um, that we understand so much of, you know, sort of politics through the centuries to be. So the home is developed, as you say, because that also provides us with the understanding of stability and what we want out of politics. Yes. So, okay. So sorry, I was waiting for the question. Um, I, I think that you could read it either way, right? So I think that if you, if you read this and you don't give a fig about private life, you could have an aha moment and say, oh, well, well, we still need people who are motivated to protect and care for their families in order to have good politics because people who uh, want to facilitate or nurture a good home life will also be more moderate and better citizens. Uh, but I think that you can also read this and say, ah, I love my family or I want to have a family that I love. And um, therefore I need a stable politics in order to protect it. I think it can, you can come at it from different angles and it still works. Does that answer that question? Yeah, I think so. Because again, that sort of goes to this understanding of, you know, what does the private sphere indicate? Why should we pay attention to it when so much we've been taught is what goes on in the public sphere. That's where real politics play, takes place. Right. I, I think for me, the answer is that because for the most part, that's where the best and most important things in our lives are going to happen. Um, and where we're going to find the friendships that will help us nurture and develop and share whatever virtues or excellences we're working on doesn't have to be the ones that I've written about and that the non-competitive nature of the private sphere, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be a home as illustrated by Patricus and Achilles. It can be a friendship that is private rather than public. Um, Is this venue for pursuing a good, virtuous, happy, full life and that we don't we shouldn't measure the value of the 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 value of the excellence of a life based on whether or not that excellence is acted out in public or private. Uh, one way I like to think about this is, uh, you know, when you read John and Abigail Adams, oftentimes there's this sense, right, of the loss of Abigail not being able to be out in public and be a statesman and do the things that at least those of us who like her think she could have done. Right. And that's, that's a real loss. I don't mean to undermine it, but I also think that we should read that and we should think John would have been a really great dad <laughs> and that they would have been better friends and the acting out of their friendship and the sharing of it together in private, nurturing their children and being a part of their community that way, you know, I'm, I'm not regretting his contribution to the revolutionary war, but would it, would their lives have been better? Would perhaps they even have been more virtuous had that public need not caused him to have to go out into public? Ultimately at the end of the day, yes, I think so. Um, so that's, that's a, not really a contemporary example, but relative to Homer, I suppose it counts. <laughs> I think it's more contemporary than Homer. So yeah, I'll give you credit for that one. <laughs> or, you know, another way of thinking about this is, is why 
you know, when we think about what kind of literature counts as serious, right? Uh, what counts? I see zero reason why Jane Austen shouldn't be as serious as anything any human being could read, because it's about uh, how you find and identify the relationships in which you're going to be able to cultivate uh, the security and the virtue that you need to lead a good life. And I don't see why, at least as a philosopher, as if not as a political philosopher, that should take second place to anything. And and again, this is where the sort of what happens in the, the quote, private um, is important and contributes to politics as well as what happens in the public. Yes, it, it is. And I think that it's really, really hard as a literary matter and perhaps as a political philosopher to illustrate why the private is so essential to us as individuals who seek excellence. Um, or to the public as a whole. And one of the things that the Odyssey does is it shows us that. And, and that, that goes to another pet theory that I have about the Odyssey, which is that that's the reason why Odysseus has to leave at the end. Because the Odyssey has this manner in which it it puts on epic scale something that I think everybody who is in a friendship, let alone a marriage experiences, which is we have these moments of coming together and then these moments of going apart and we come together and we go apart. Well, in the Odyssey, they take place in like 20 year spans, which is a bit much for most of us mortals. Um, but, but it wouldn't be true to life if at the end of the story it was just, and they lived happily ever after. And so this leaving again is, you know, at the beginning of the day, we as family members part for one another, but we long for the end of the day where we come back together. And I think that that's part of what makes it work. And it's part of what makes this story about something that is private, something that that is somehow able to bridge that gap and make it onto the bookshelf of great books where there are relatively few books about private life versus public. That's true. And, and I, I really like this sort of understanding and analysis of the importance of that, the, as well as, as you know, the sort of melancholy of it, um, which is very real. I mean, as anybody knows who's said goodbye to a family member or a friend, um, Right, so, and literature doesn't go to do that, right? It ends with the happily ever after uh, in this genre of- Or everybody's dead. You or know. everybody's dead, <laughs> right. And then we know it's valuable because we're sad because we lost it. Right. And the Odyssey doesn't do either one of those, which I find actually to be um, more reflective of life than either of the other two endings. <laughs> yes, because it's not a fairy tale and it's also not necessarily, life isn't necessarily the tragedy of everybody being dead at the end. <laughs> Um, as in Hamlet. Uh, so Michelle, what are you working on now? I am working on uh, two projects that are both uh, kind of spinoffs. One is very direct. I discovered that uh, Thomas Hobbes uh, translated the Iliad and the Odyssey. Yes. And I thought, ooh, he must have been up to something. <laughs> <laughs> I'll write a paper on it. And what I've discovered thus far is that he really redacted friendship. Ah, interesting. <laughs> and love. 
and the willingness to die for someone else because I think he thought it could upset the sovereign's control over you. Uh, so I'm writing on a, a short, a working article on totalitarianism and Hobbes seen through what he did to the relationships between characters in the Iliad and the Odyssey. And then um, another thing that I discovered while writing this is how much I admire self-restraint or moderation and think it could be discussed more in politics. And so I'm writing a, I'm just starting a book on uh, rhetoric in democracy, which is going to be focused on the rhetoric of Atticus Finch, who was named after the ancient school of rhetoric called the um, Attic School, um, which focuses on moderate rhetoric and um, has been somewhat denigrated as a way of making any progress in a democracy. And I want to try to show that moderate rhetoric has a capacity to uh, make ground possibly with less damage than demagogic rhetoric. I think it's interesting that once again, I'm writing about a father. <laughs> um, that is interesting. I, I hadn't even thought of it until you noted that. And I think I've heard a little bit of that research at a panel a, a year ago, maybe. Um but I look forward to that book and hopefully speaking to you about it on the new books in political science podcast when it comes out. I hope you'll join me for that. Of course, it would be lovely. All right. So today I was joined by Michelle Kuhn Miller uh, to discuss Homer's Hero, Human Excellence in the Iliad and the Odyssey, published in 2019 by State University of New York Press. I assume this is available at the SUNY Press website. Um, and any other brick and mortar store with a uh, virtual platform that you'd like to give a shout out to? I apologize. I've been transplanted too many times. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so just if you're interested in the book, um, SUNY Press website is probably a good place to get it. Thank you for joining me today, Michelle. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure.